1: Soundsington Media!
2: Hey Brian, if you could explore any planet in our solar system, you know, other than Earth, which planet would you explore?
1: I think I would want to go to Saturn and uh, explore that, you know, because of the rings.
2: Ryan, I have the same answer. I want to go to Saturn and look at the rings. Oh my
1: gosh, why didn't you just choose a different answer for variety for the opening of the podcast?
2: Because, I want to be honest. So, in today's episode of Reach, a space podcast for kids, we'll be talking all about building machines that explore other worlds and what it takes to succeed with teams of people working to do some pretty amazing things.
1: We'll speak with the chief engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who will share some incredible stories from missions over the past four decades.
2: And we'll have a fun conversation with a dwarf planet who also happens to be the largest object in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter.
1: I'm Brian Holden.
2: And I'm Meredith Stepien. And this is Reach, a space podcast for kids. Welcome to another edition of REACH, a space podcast for kids.
1: If you've been keeping pace with recent episodes of REACH, you'll know that we've been focusing on specific missions in space exploration, along with answering questions about space from you, our listeners.
2: And today we have a special opportunity to speak with someone who's been a part of some incredible endeavors over the past four decades. You know, Brian, if you're planning to explore space, I bet it takes time to decide where you want to go in the first place. Where do you think
1: our listeners would want to go?
2: Well, good question, because I recently connected with our Reach listener community and asked, if you could explore one planet in the solar system, which planet would you explore and why? Cool. What'd they say? Let's have a listen.
0: If I could explore one planet in the solar system, it would be Saturn so I could see the rings. I would explore Mars to see if it was livable.
2: Very cool.
1: Awesome answers.
2: In this week's episode, we had the real honor of sitting down with Rob Manning, chief engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory.
1: Rob's been designing, testing, and operating robotic spacecraft for 40 years, including Galileo to Jupiter, Cassini to Saturn, and Magellan to Venus, and many missions to Mars.
2: And today, we'll hear Rob talk about NASA's early successes in exploring Mars, how scientists and engineers communicate with rovers, and why it's important to work together as a team when solving problems.
1: Well, Rob Manning, Chief Engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, it's an honor to have you on the podcast.
0: It's an honor for me. (laughs) Thank you for asking me to come.
1: Hey, it's our pleasure. Now, for our listeners... Could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do so they know just how special this is?
0: Oh, well, thank you. Uh, well, I've been very lucky. Just first of all, you know, it's sometimes better to be lucky than good. You mm-hmm. know, as an expression you've heard. Um, I, I think, I, I don't think I'm a great engineer, but I, I've been very lucky in my career. I, I managed to arrive at uh, JPL uh, while I was still an stu- undergraduate student at Caltech in Pasadena, California where I studied electrical engineering and math and physics. I graduated, worked my way up through electronics and working on space missions. Now, I thought, you know, coming out of school, that I'm going to be actually working on hardware stuff that actually is going to go to another planet. That just boggled my mind. And then I was, I would actually found myself testing and carrying electronics that <laughs> will, you know, millions of dollars worth of equipment in my hands. And, and that electronics is going to be put on a spaceship and that spaceship will be launched from the space shuttle and it's going to fly across the solar system and go to Jupiter and explore Jupiter. Now, what a mind boggling concept that something that I'm touching and I'm testing and making work and even designing was, would actually go to another planet, which is so mind boggling to me. But I said, okay, I'm hooked. I love this stuff. So I, so, so I kept on going and over years I became. Uh, electronics lead um and for both hardware and some software for computers on board spacecraft, uh, Magellan Cassini spacecraft of um, that went to Saturn, worked in Magellan to Venus, Galileo to Voy- to Jupiter. Um I missed Voyager. I, Voyager had just launched when I started, not long a couple years earlier. But I was able to work on their, on their test bed and the operations for Voyager, which was a lot of fun. But it was, it was still a new project. And even Viking on, the, on Mars was still operating. So I was able to help a little bit in the operations team for Viking too. In those days, electronics and everything about the spacecraft, we didn't have computers. We didn't have laptops. We didn't have the internet. It didn't exist. Everything was done with, with erasers and pencils on paper or on, on blackboards one so when we were building computers to build our, to fly in our spacecraft, these are computers that we really built by hand. So we, we've wondered like someday we'll use these computers to help us design computers, which actually happened. My career really took a, a sharp turn when I was asked to, uh, uh, to join in as chief engineer for a little tiny mission to Mars called Mars Pathfinder. Yeah. Uh, that was, uh, that was a low-cost, fixed-price project. We were trying to prove some twenty-some years after Viking landed that that we could go back to Mars relatively inexpensively, because NASA hadn't been sent anything to Mars after Viking because it would appear to be just way too expensive. And Viking and, went to Mars in
1: 1975. Is that right?
0: Yes. Uh, There's an orbiter. Two orbiters and two landers, two landers that are attached to each of the orbiters that um, both landed on Mars, Viking 1 and 2, back in uh, 1976. NASA and scientists realized that Mars was probably not terribly hospitable on the surface even before Viking got there. So their experiments there proved that life didn't appear to have any life on the surface. Mm. It seemed a very sterile place. However, there were, each, each of these landers had three instruments on them that detect life. And they agreed that if two out of three of these instruments on each of the spacecraft detected life, they would say there was life on Mars. It turned out only one instrument, the same one on both spacecraft, said that something strange going on. There appears to be life. But NASA said that was that's not enough information. As Carl Sagan said, um, he repeatedly says, you know, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. Mm-hmm. And the evidence was not sufficiently extraordinary to to declare that life was present on Mars. And years later, it's been, it's still been a mystery as to why that one instrument declared that there appeared to be life. We now have hypotheses of what it is. We think it's not life based, but it's still, well, doesn't that mean that there's no life on Mars it just was no life where we were digging. And so it's the question about life on Mars was, well, Mars appears to be a red colored moon. It's so like our moon except color red. Yeah. I so said wait a second. What What are those river channels we see there? Yeah, maybe those could be lava flows. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe water. I don't know. So NASA was kind of left it there for twenty years. We can't, We were allowed to come back, so we we got ourselves and we were said, okay, we have a small team of people. Really, I would say we had a little over a hundred working on the project altogether. But the main core of the team was between thirty and fifty people.
1: This is for the Pathfinder. Uh, Pathfinder uh, robotic spacecraft
0: in the nineties, right? Correct. So we worked on it in the early nineties. We, there's a separate team that we worked very closely with, the Sojourner team, that made the little Sojourner rover, the first Mars rover. That Mars rover is about the size of your microwave oven. Oh my and, gosh! In fact, a little bit smaller and probably lighter than your microwave oven, uh, with six wheels and had the little, little, uh, the famous rocker bogey system that allows the wheels to move up and down to conform with the surface of the of Mars. And it ran with a simple little uh, eight-bit microprocessor. And it did all its work, uh, and, and it came along for the ride. And we had a little walkie-talkie between the lander and the rover, so they could go, "Hey, Sojourner, you hear me?" "Yep, yeah, I can hear you." And and uh, uh, so the, the the cool thing is, we were able to have the lander talk to the rover, transfer um, a script of of things to do to that rover, and via a communication link that the lander had with Earth with a small dish antenna that was on top of the lander.
1: I see so the lander had sort of the more heavy duty equipment to communicate with mm-hmm. earth and then that communicated with the little rover b- kind of like the little RC car yes uh, so because the
0: RC car couldn't handle yeah. that that larger equipment right and that fact's exactly the model that we used architecture for for that Mars helicopter now mm-hmm. flying around Mars and so so the ingenuity so the helicopter has been has been incredibly, ah, oh, what a wonderful mission that's turned out to be. They've done so well. They have so much gone far beyond anything that anybody would hope for. It's now become not just the mascot for Perseverance, but it's the scout. And the science team uses that helicopter to scout ahead to see where the rover should and can go. And it's got a great little camera, color camera, that, a context camera that allows the scientists to look carefully at a at an area at a scale they can't see from outer space with with our orbiting cameras, um, at a detail that the scientists really appreciate, and so they are thrilled that they have this helicopter. The team it's a really small team, so it's not a big burden on the on the project. They only fly every couple of weeks, and and when they do fly, it's only for uh, the whole process is over in less than an hour. Their flight is usually under three minutes long, so it's a very short. You go fly across, uh, lift straight up, and then fly horizontally about 10 meters above the ground, about 30 feet, and uh, zip them over when they find their, they go to a spot that we pre-designated based on pictures we have taken from outer space. Wow. And land straight straight down on that pixel that you can see from outer space. And that pixel is be a good spot to land. And that's very much analogous to what we did with Sojourner back in the 90s. We would we would have cameras on our lander. We have, we have stereo cameras that allow us to see the area around the lander and the and the rover we would say okay from those pictures the rover team would help designate where which rock they wanted to go visit so they would send the, the list of commands and messages to the rover to give it guidance cuz remember we're not we can't control like a radio controlled car for one thing it takes you know at the time we landed it was between 11 and 20 minutes for the signal to get to mars from earth and of course it takes that cuz radio waves move at the speed of light there were no speed of light. Um, it seems very fast, right? But it's not that fast. It still takes minutes for a light from the sun to get to get to to, to Earth, about eighty eight minutes. It takes about uh, it takes uh, about twenty minutes, between ten and twenty minutes, roughly, to get to a signal to Mars from Earth, which is quite a ways away. And so, um, we basically have to have a rover that is smart enough to be given hints of what to do, and then basically rely on it to do it on its own. In fact, usually we're not talking to the rovers at all or listening to them at all when they're doing their mission. They're basically doing this in silence. We give them a list of things to do in the morning. The rover um, will do its job all day without talking to us with its radio turned off. And only late in the afternoon will we actually hear something. And In the case of Pathfinder, we didn't have orbiters. We just had a little Pathfinder. So we had to communicate using the 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 lander's radio antenna back to Earth. And, um, uh, but since then we've now with our current rovers, we now have orbiters that trip, spin around the planet and they have their own walkie talkies. So our landers, our rovers can now talk to, to orbiters, which would then relay all the pictures and all the data we get using their great big antennas they have on their orbiters and great big solar panels to power their big radios, sending the bits as fast as they can to Earth, crossing the, the, the solar system. And and about an hour after they're sent, we get them here in Pasadena and uh, on the uh, in Billy 264, where we collect all the bits, the, the bits all arrive from various places around the world, thanks to the deep space network. And uh, and we can hear from them. So it's really fun. So, yeah, that whole pattern, how to get that down, we figured out on Pathfinder uh, how, to, how to operate a vehicle that has to go to sleep every night. Go to sleep. Why would you want to go to sleep? Well, because there's no electricity. The light on Mars is, only, is about half as bright um, or less than half as bright as it is on Earth because Mars is further from the sun. That means the solar panel, you only get as much light as you get in the solar panels uh, for the solar-powered landers. And, uh, and then you, so the rest of the day, you just really have to hunker down um, and sleep. And hopefully your solar rays are even charged up. Or in the case of Perseverance or Curiosity rovers, they have a plutonium power supply, which produces a, basically trickle charges the battery. A lot, it just puts a little bit of charge into the battery all day long, a little bit, only a hundred watts into the battery. The battery is charged up. When the rover wakes up, it lives off the battery. <laughs> so it's like your phone. So like yeah. you your phone, you've got your phone, you do all your work with your phone and you're all living off the battery. And then at night, you plug it back in and you'll charge your phone up again. for the next- I was- I was going
1: to say, I am I feel like I'm relating to these rovers and these landers more and more. You're talking about, like, yeah. they, get, they get their instructions at the beginning of the day. Then they just get their personal time to go do their work. That's kind of like work from home, which I've yeah, yeah, yeah. been doing. They have yeah. to sleep at night, or some of them do. You know, you know
0: cool. that's they'll important they'll as well. Get refreshed in the morning. If they're if you've got this little plutonium power supply, your battery's a little charged up. If you're solar powered, you're not charged up. You have to wait for the sun to come up. And so that hopefully you'll charge yourself up in the middle of the day when you're busy doing other things. In your book, which is called Mars
1: Rover Curiosity, an inside account from Curiosity's chief engineer, that's you, you talk a little bit about listening, collaborating as part of a team and how to deal with mistakes when you make them. So what is your approach to mistakes when when you're working to try
0: and solve problems? Oh, I, I'm so glad you asked that question. This And this is actually the most important thing. Well, the, the wonderful thing about the work that we do is that it doesn't matter how smart you think you are. Mother nature is always smarter than us. Mm. We are not individually smart enough to do this work. And the fact that we're human, just like everybody else, that we, mistakes are part of the process. In fact, it's built into the very fabric of good engineering, where you've heard the term trial and error. Will you try something out? It's called a trial. And if you if that trial works out, um, you succeed. If the trial doesn't and you fail, well, then you figure out why you failed and you try again. And you do this over and over and over until you get something you think will work. In our case, I said we didn't test it and we didn't test the whole thing end to end, but we tested the daylights. Out of all the little pieces, we drop parachutes over and over again. We we ran pieces of heat shield through high speed wind tunnel and arc jet facilities to get the glow of the heat to make sure the material wouldn't burn up. We would we would test the mechanism to suspend the lander down or the mechanism to surround the air. The airbags. We would inflate full-size airbags and full-size landers inside the world's largest vacuum chamber and drop them at nearly 100 miles an hour on a 60-foot-tall rock platform studded with boulders and rocks that we brought in from Arizona um, to uh, wow. an impacts. And we did it over and over and over again until it started working. And it, it, by the way, because the first times it didn't work, we would get huge tears in the airbags. We had to go, oh my gosh, what did we do? How, why did it tear? What do we need to do to fix it? Quickly, let's redesign the airbags and try it again. In some cases, we would build one circuit set of airbags with actually four different designs on it, so we could rotate it and position and test different parts of it. It was a case of you know us trying to get good. And the key to this is humility. Um, one of the things, I, 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 one of the things that saddens me a little bit about today's society is that there's a lot of things, especially with social media, where people are liked or disliked. Like there's a black and white judging of individuals, especially if they make a mistake, people are really all over them. And so people become very afraid in this digital society of appearing to have any weaknesses or any sign of being wrong. And I think being wrong is essential to engineering. In our world, we cherish being wrong and we are not afraid to admit our own mistakes. Why? Because those who learn from the mistakes are the ones who win in the end mm. and, and and ultimately, you know I have told our own my own staff here that you know I have personally damaged three independent spacecraft sped over many years, destroyed hardware that had to be pulled out and replaced you now that's extraordinarily embarrassing, but in the process it wasn't because I was malicious it's because it's easy to miss something and realize that you're using something improperly or in the right wrong conditions, and just miss that detail. And just realize that oh my gosh, I operate it outside of its design envelope. and can't fly it anymore because I probably stressed it. I need to fix it. And 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 some of these are very very complex and subtle. Now that's why it's so important in you working in a team to have uh, other people around you who are willing to cr- criticize each other. Mm-hmm. I didn't know say like. In a way, like, oh, you're an idiot. No, not that way. For this to work, aren't you, aren't you worried about this happening first? If that happens, won't this happen? And this bad thing opens? It's like, yeah, you might be right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, we could, we could do this. Okay, we tried this. What, well, what if that happens over here? It took us years to convince ourselves that the sky idea of a sky crane lowering a rover on ropes was not a crazy idea. The team dynamic is so important. Being a team that is comfortable in their own skin, they're not afraid of being criticized, but also not afraid of learning from the streets and not afraid of each other. Um, and, our, and their job is to see through the eyes of each other and try to su- support each other. When we finally get to decisions of what we need to do, and our job is to find out ways to make it all work. And once you're in that mode of being, yes, let's see what we can do. What can we do to make this work? this it doesn't work over here but it works fine over here how can i fix that part over there and, uh, do I, and and if i do that will i ruin this over here well, let's find out let's try different ideas and try them out and so that kind of thing is so central to the to the act and to our success really it's very refreshing and it makes for a very strong team dynamic they learn to trust each other because we learn to live with our own fallibilities as human beings because none of us are perfect you'll run into people We'll always run to people who are smarter than you are on any topic, every time. And there's a lot of trust there as well of being, you know, being able to be vulnerable
1: enough to say like, hey, you know, this is imperfect. Like, how yes. the rest of the team pokes some holes in it. And exactly. it's, it's like a two-handed skill, being able to give criticism. In a, in a constructive way and being able to receive that. I think that's a really valuable lesson for some it of our listeners.
0: It is. And I have to admit, you know, it, it is so tempting to br- bring your own emotions into it and, or, or to judge people based on what they say, either whether it's good or bad and, and, and say, well, that person's not very smart. What were they thinking? Inevitably, you will find that that person has something magical to offer if you know where to find it. And uh, so, so you really have to be force yourself to have an open mind with other people and to listen and also not be judgmental when they do make a mistake. Mm. Like you would not want them to be judgmental when you make a mistake.
1: Rob, I think that I have one final question for you here, and it sort of like reflects on your very expansive career with robotic spacecraft. You were involved with Galileo going to Jupiter, Cassini to Saturn, Magellan to Venus. We talked about some of your work on Mars, and I know that you have poured over the images that have been sent by these landers and rovers. And so I, I wonder, do you have a particular image or a particular picture from your, the entire breadth of all these spacecraft that has really stuck with
0: you or that you find particularly inspirational? The answer is yes, there's more than one, but they're all, they all have the same characteristic. Although I love seeing the natural beauty of these places that we visit, stars, galaxies, the the looking at Earth from a distance, the vast expanses of Mars vistas, but there's something poignant. I love this word juxtaposition, where where you've taken two things that seem that they don't belong together. You put them in the same image. The juxtaposition I'm talking about is a view of Mars, for example. You see this beautiful horizon, but on that horizon are wheel tracks of your rover going off in the distance back from where you you came from, Um, or a little bit of the solar panel, a little bit of the robotic arm. There's something about bringing a little bit of humanity's footprints, Even even though it's a robot but something that was physically made by real people's hands in the same picture with this place that has never before been seen by real humans up to that point in the whole history of the universe. There's something magical about that. It says something both about the world and about us and about our own presence. We may be the only species, simply the only species anywhere nearby that has the ability to ponder our place in the universe and to appreciate the scale the vastness of this place that that we live in the the incredible vastness of deep time 13.7 billion years on a a universe um a four and a half a four billion years old um planet very ancient mars is about the same age these places have been vastly around longer than we've as human beings have ever been around. And so there's something about making that connection, to be the first, to potentially the first, at least anywhere in our planetary vicinity, to be able to make those connections and see ourselves in that context. So that's why I love these pictures, because it really brings back these two elements, the the deep depth of, of time, uh, and the in this in some sense, the separability the independence of the universe from us as a species and the fact that here we are in it now touching it interacting these with these very surreal and far away places that we are just guests visiting in this short period of time of our short period of our lives
1: that's really really wonderful i really like that answer thank you very much we heard you had a minor planet named after you. Can you
0: tell us about that? Yes, it's a um, little rock in the asteroid belt. But I knew the the, the team who was who had set up a tele- set of telescopes looking for these minor planets, and they were just thrilled about the Pathfinder experience. So they grabbed a couple of us, and they named us some some of the discoveries after uh, after us. So there's a planet. Um, I think it's called uh, ten three eighty nine. Uh, Rob Manning. Excellent. And so uh, it's kind of cool. I don't think I have any any uh, mining rights or or uh, building <laughs> rights to the place. And uh, I often imagine, you know, this is maybe maybe this is one. Of, this is the home of the little prince. So maybe that's where he's he's got his rose there and uh, is living happily.
1: Well, yeah. cheers to you, Rob. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful interview. I am going to just go ahead and say this on behalf of the whole team here at Reach. We'd love to have you back sometime. You obviously have so much to share. I know our listeners could benefit from that. So I look forward to the day when we have you back on the podcast.
0: I would be happy to And I can talk a little bit about our latest challenge to try to find ways to bring back the sample cores that the Perseverance rover is now collecting on the surface of Mars as we speak.
1: Yes, excellent. I love it. A teaser for next time. Yep. Excellent, Rob. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: You're very welcome. Thanks a lot, Brian.
2: So cool. Thanks again for joining us on Reach, Rob. You know, Brian, we've talked about what it takes to build and operate machines built to explore planets like Saturn, Jupiter, Venus, and Mars.
1: And now we're super pumped to be joined by another very special guest on this week's edition of Did You Know?
2: Let's give a big Reach welcome to everyone's favorite dwarf planet... Ceres.
3: Hello, Ceres. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Brian and Meredith. Bri-bri, mer-mer. Did you know that I was discovered on January 1st, 1801 by astronomer and Catholic priest Giuseppe Piazzi? That makes me a New Year's baby. Woo! I'm named after the Roman goddess of agriculture and harvest. I did not know that. Did you know that I'm the largest object in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter? And I am unique in that I am the only dwarf planet located in the inner solar system? Oh, wow. That's right. Did you know that when NASA's Dawn visited in 2015, I became the first dwarf planet to receive a visit from a spacecraft? No big deal, but... Ceres is a big deal.
1: Wow, that's amazing. There's so much to learn about you, Ceres.
3: Did you know that before receiving the classification of dwarf planet in 2006, I was misclassified as an asteroid for many, many years.
1: So what are your favorite things about being a dwarf planet?
3: Oh, I'd like to talk about many things about myself. I love talking about Ceres. <laughs> Dawn found my surface to be a mixture of water, ice, and hydrated minerals such as carbonates and clay. I love carbs. So many, many, many things have been named after me. A documentary. An anime show. A station named after me on the hit show The Expanse. That one's for adults. Cereal. You know, the harvest grain, get it, because I'm named after the Roman goddess of the harvest. Ah, I even have cerium, a rare earth element named after moi. (laughs) That's right, bri-bri, mare-mare. You know, over the years, I have been called many things. From an asteroid to the missing planet and... I was sitting here like, I am here. <laughs> I've been here the entire time. <laughs> then maybe I was going to be a planet, but now I am a dwarf planet. And let me just say, just because you're small doesn't mean you aren't capable of great things. And don't you forget it.
1: Well, Sirius, thanks so much for joining us this week on Did You Know?
3: Thank you so much for having me. And Bri Bri mare mare. I just want to say, I love this Did You Know series. Love. Series. Did you get it? (laughs) I slay me.
2: Brian, I can't believe we got to hear from Rob Manning, chief engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory.
1: Right? What an amazing conversation. And we had to leave so much on the cutting room floor as well. He is truly a wealth of knowledge and experience, has so many great stories. Rob, we can't wait to have you back on the podcast.
2: Hey, listener, do you have a science or space-related question? Because we'd love to hear from you.
1: Just get your parents' permission and give us a call at 312-248-3402. Leave us a message with your first name, where you're from, and your question for a chance to be featured in an upcoming episode.
2: You can also send questions via email at reachthepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us on Reach, a Space Podcast for Kids. We're your hosts, Meredith Stepien
1: and Brian Holden. This episode of Reach was written by Sandy Marshall with Nate DeFort, Meredith Stepien, and Brian Holden.
2: Reach is produced by Nate DeFort and Sandy Marshall, who's a solar system ambassador for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and edited by Nate DeFort.
1: Our theme song and additional music was composed by Jesse Case.
2: And our logo was created by Stephen Lyons. Special
1: thanks to Rob Manning, Chief Engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory.
2: Thank you, Rob.
1: You can follow JPL on Instagram and Twitter at NASAJPL.
2: We'd also like to offer a special thanks to Kay Ferrari and Dolores Zawal at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and to everyone else at NASA Space Place.
1: Series was voiced by the incomparable Ashley Como. Ashley is not only one of our favorite humans, but you can also catch her as the science teacher on Degrassi, Next Class, and the evil Jamie Jam on Odd Squad and Odd Squad Mobile Unit.
2: And as always, a big thanks to the Reach Learning Community for their amazing contributions.
1: Hey, Meredith, fun fact. Did you know that the International Space Station orbits the Earth approximately every 90 minutes? So, about the time it
2: takes to watch a movie?
1: If that movie is approximately 90 minutes, then yes. Okay,
2: so what about, like, 88 minutes?
1: We did say approximately, so that'll do. Good. If you're enjoying Reach, be sure to tell your friends and leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice.
2: Or share an episode on social media.
1: And if you'd like to find us online, visit at Reach the Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or on our website at reachthepodcast.com.
2: Reach is a production of Soundsington Media, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to soundsingtonmedia.com. We've all been there. You're standing in a museum staring at a painting, and all you can think is, I don't get it. To me, knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it. I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts.